I'm Chad Main, the founder of legal services company Precipient, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal technology, innovation in the legal industry, and the impact tech is having on the law. In today's episode, I'm talking to Nathan Walter. He's the founder of Repoint. That's an app that uses AI to automate routine legal drafting tasks. A good chunk of a lawyer's time and those working with them is cutting and pasting from prior work, copying similar documents, and using templates. This is especially true in litigation and especially in discovery. That's the phase of a lawsuit during which parties exchange information that might end up as evidence at a trial. Thankfully, over the last couple of decades, there's been more and more apps that help automate the creation of legal documents. Historically, these programs have been form-based and users populated documents by selecting choices from a menu. But with advances in generative AI, maybe we don't need forms anymore. That's what today's guest is banking on. Nathan Walter is a former litigator who is attempting to, as he describes it, take typing out of litigation. How is he and his company Briefpoint trying to do this? By using tech to analyze legal documents like interrogatories and document requests, and then generating a response to requests to give legal teams a head start on drafting these documents. As we will hear, Nathan's motivation to found a legal tech company comes from the countless times that he advised his client to settle cases that were meritorious, but it simply didn't make sense for them to keep going because the legal fees would end up being more than the amount at issue itself. Nathan figures that if more and more legal processes are automated and augmented with AI, it will bring legal fees down and free up lawyers to focus on more complicated stuff rather than cutting and pasting prior work product. To further this goal, Nathan taught himself to code and started pitching ideas to potential customers to see what would stick, and that's where he came up with Briefpoint. But Nathan's not just a formal litigator turned legal tech founder. As we will hear, his life and career path have not been that linear. Heard any good jokes lately? <laughs> a stand-up. I think you're the first stand-up comedian that we've had on Technically Legal. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay. I have to disclose, I was an open micer for four years. I was not a, I, I like a stand-up comedian. You had to go on tour. You had to sacrifice basically everything for 10 years to get a chance at success. I... Just did open mics in LA when I was in law school in San Francisco and San Diego. I got paid every once in a while for gigs, but yeah, it was a lot of fun. And there was actually a moment in law school where I had a gig in like the Midwest and I thought, oh, maybe like, should I be a lawyer or should I be a stand-up comedian? And all of my <laughs> friends that were in stand-up comedy, I looked at their lives and it was just, it was really rough. So I said, I'll, I'll just get into law. <laughs> I'll save my dreams for, for another time. Were you doing gigs at the comedy store or open, like, open mics there? Where were the gigs? Yeah, so I started off in the Brainwash Cafe in San Francisco. So I was working at the Superior Court of Savannah County as a clerk. And after work, I would drive down the 101 in Northern California, go to San Francisco, and there was the Brainwash Cafe on Folsom Street. So this is downtown San Francisco. And it was a laundromat slash bar <laughs> slash cafe and on thursday nights they let stand-up comedians do stand-up there so you'd be giving a set and someone could have some change in their jeans that they threw into the wash and all of a sudden it'll just start banging in the middle of your set <laughs> and it just ruins your momentum on stage but it was a really good community and it was the most warm and welcoming place to do stand-up it unfortunately is closed now uh but if you're looking to get into stand-up, San Francisco is a great place to start. What's that great venue? Um, Zach Galifianakis did one of his early works there. 
up there in San Francisco. What's oh, where he was on the piano? I think so. Yeah, I was think that so, Punchline? Right? I don't remember. But that's a great, that's a, I highly recommend that. Yeah. It's early on, I think before he got his real big acting career. Right. So you, you're, you're doing this, you went to UCLA Law, you're clerking up in Northern California. I assume you were already in law school when you had the clerkship? Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. And so then during the school year, you, in LA, you do this stuff around there? Yeah, so then in LA, I was doing just open mics around Westwood, because I was, I was at UCLA and uh, for law school, and so I would go... There's some places around Westwood. The, the Los Angeles comedy scene is, is brutal relative right. to San yeah, Francisco. Sure. Yeah. So you're speaking to an audience and it's just, there's the host of the open mic. There's an agent or two looking for like the next talent. There's the comic that's going to go on next and then empty seats and all the comics, there's 50 comics standing outside smoking yeah. cigarettes and you're <laughs> in just talking to effectively an empty crowd. I love it. I love it. I think it's great. It's it's such a great thing to do this podcast and you find out because usually, you know, lo- people go to law school, lawyers, people in the legal industry, very serious, you know, they're, it's, I, I love it when I hear these other interests that, that yeah. people well, yeah. have. Cool. Dimitri Martin was in law school. Um, God, Greg Giraldo, I think was a corporate attorney. I, I may be getting that wrong, but you know, lawyers are actually pretty funny. Like they, right. they don't, they think very creatively and right. i think that's something that's overlooked a lot of times with lawyers you you assume that they're very stuffy and stuff but when you're actually practicing in litigation you need to be creative within confines and i think creativity within confines is is really very important for all art you know they might not be the most bubbly people but they certainly <laughs> they can think outside of the box speaking of outside the box you have a philosophy degree i mean you the trajectory of your career is incredible. You, you come out of UCSB with a philosophy degree? Yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, yeah, the rabbit hole goes deeper. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I have a philosophy degree. I love philosophy. Before I went to law school, I was in the process of setting up a sort of yacht vacation business to <laughs> compete with Yacht Week. And it was going to be called Regatta Royale. And it was going to be like a Caribbean competitor of Europe's croatian yacht week and that's oh, where my. you just have a bunch of college kids on a yacht and you go partying i mean yeah i went to ucsb so i was <laughs> a, a career in partying i was like this is going to be so easy for me but that fell through i said oh man i, I don't really know what i'm going to do with my career so i was like let's just kick the decision down the road because at the time people weren't paying people to think a lot about stuff so a philosophy degree wasn't like a computer science degree in that way, not a lot of career fairs where, right. you know, <laughs> like we need an Aristotle expert to help with our supply chain. But to your point though, about the way lawyers think, I, I think that's very beneficial to kind of, you know, come with a philosophical bent, see things critically and from different angles. Oh, a hundred percent. So when I went to law school, I didn't expect to fall in love with the law like I did. And the same reasons I love philosophy, I really love the law because the law was a practical philosophy. It was a philosophy of justice within a nation and like what is right and wrong. And then how do we apply that? And then you, you consider philosophic ideas like uh, deterrence in the case of criminal justice or uh, like what's right to do, what is proportional justice and how do we incentivize certain behavior and all these things that you really get very granular when you're actually studying philosophy are now having practical effects. So I, I was just like, oh my God, this is amazing. And I loved it. I loved it a lot. 
my passion for law really passion for law. That sounds so pretentious. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I was just constantly reading my law books and the sunsets of, of Maui. On the yacht. Yeah. Oh yeah. On the yacht. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, that, that obviously didn't work out for yeah. a reason, but, um, yeah, no, I, I think the law had like the practicality that philosophy didn't. And so I just ended up just loving it. And I love practicing law too. There were a lot of issues with the practice that led me away. But when I left, I left to fix the practice of law so that maybe one day I'll go back to it and all the issues with the billable yeah. hour incentives and the, the grind culture could uh, be hopefully alleviated to some yeah. degree, right? So I want to get there and we're going to get to your, not only your legal career, but your legal tech career. But before we get there, just, just to show and all the different angles your life has taken, you also did a stint, I think it was a courtship with the hardcore gang unit for the Los Angeles DA. How does that come about with your background? So my mom was a public defender. Okay. Uh, she was the first female public defender in Napa, and which is like a, a county in Northern California. I, I assume that's a household name right now. But I, wine. Uh, most people drink wine. They're, they're, they're going to know it. Most people that listen to your <laughs> podcast drink wine. And if oh, yeah. they haven't broken out a second bottle of the cab by this point, I don't know what they're, 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 they're they must not exactly. be listening. No, but so I was really interested in, you know, philosophy and I, I care a lot about uh, social philosophy and moral philosophy. And so my initial idea is I'm going to be a public defender too, because I really like, I don't know, I, I like helping people a lot. I think that's the law is best when you're, you're able to use your expertise and like max out your knowledge and your instinct to help people who are in a very scary process, who have none of the tools to help themselves or the tools they have are insufficient. And when you go to be a public defender and you tell people about that, like professors and stuff, they encourage you, they say, okay, work for the DA. So you understand right. the prosecution's mechanics. So when you're proceeding through your career as a defender, you'll be surprised less frequently. And I went into the DA's hardcore gang unit and it was an incredible experience. And we were prosecuting gang-related homicides in Los Angeles County. So we worked with the DEA and the FBI and all that stuff. And the first thing that happened was it gave me, seeing how difficult it was to put these people it, it, that had, like, we had video evidence of them you know, committing murders. And the risk of them not going to jail, give, like, how much really depended on how you prosecuted the case. I actually had a lot more faith in the, the criminal justice system than I started with, but I also had some pretty big issues personally with just the subject matter of the litigation. Right. And that's something that I didn't really think about. I said, you know, I I've seen CSI Miami. I think I know how dark the world <laughs> yet. I had no idea. Uh, it was so much worse than I could have imagined. And I have so much respect for people that can do that. But I always brought that work home and I said, you know, I, <laughs> I think this is a really important job and I think I, people that need to do this, but I can't do this. Right. I, I'm too queasy for this subject matter. I wasn't strong enough. So I went from there and then I, I got a job uh, doing aviation and aerospace litigation. Which they always say too is, you know, if you want to be a good litigator, go work for the, the DA's office, work for a public defender and then go to a law firm, which is what you did. And you went into litigation practice. And how long were you doing that? So I did aviation and aerospace for two years. And you're exactly right. I mean, you just get more at bats. If you're doing criminal law, there's such a high volume and the processes are such where you're going to trial more frequently because 
you don't settle, you right. plead. Uh, so there's just way more likelihood that your case are going to go to trial. So you're going more trials before you get better at trial work. And you can learn a lot from seasoned DAs. You know, the mentorship is so critical in law. And having these DAs who have been doing it for 30 years, or even the defenders that have been doing it for 30 years, watching what they do. And you can you just watch them once and you'll learn 20 different things that you can apply for your whole career. And so, yeah, then going back to uh, my post-criminal life, I was in aviation and aerospace for two years. And then I went to uh, Watt Teeter to do construction contract litigation. So it's a mega project construction contract. There's a little surety work there. When we come back, Nathan tells us how an article he read about geometric patterns started him on his legal tech journey and how a video game community he created led him to a CTO that helped him begin to build BriefPoint. I'm Chad Main, and you're listening to Technically Legal. This podcast is brought to you by Percipient, a legal services company powered by technology. Percipient helps legal teams tackle legal operations, electronic document review, and process automation. Percipient services include managed document review, subpoena compliance, cyber incident response, and also helps legal teams provide clients with process-driven legal support. To learn more, visit percipient.co. Percipient. Legal services powered by technology. So Nathan had been a litigator for a few years, but he found himself becoming more and more frustrated with the reality practicing law. He started to ask himself if he was really fulfilling his duty as a lawyer in servicing justice. That's when he stumbled on an article about law as a fractal, a geometric pattern that repeats itself. So I had the idea, I was like, okay, I want to do good with law. I thought that being an attorney, you know, we were interested in servicing justice. And I think, I think most attorneys are, and they consider themselves to be officers of the court that do service justice. I was always interested in tech and I sort of stumbled into some modeling of the application of law that related to certain mathematical models. I that, saw this, the law of fractals, law as a fractal. Yeah, the law as, as a fractal. Yeah. And you, you can see behind me, there's a giant Mandelbrot set, which is like the, the first fractal that was graphed on a graphic. Which is company. a pattern. So basically, I mean, I, can, it, I think if your listeners have been to law school, they, they will understand this. There is a formula called Iraq. And that formula is issue, rule, analysis, conclusion. It's the way you structure an argument or brief in order to maximize persuasiveness. And you sort of lay out the issue, you lay out the rule, you do the legal analysis and the conclusion. So what does this look like in a brief or a motion? It will say, you know, here's the introduction, here's a statement of facts, here's the legal analysis, here's the conclusion. Well, I saw that pattern and then I, in the actual individual paragraphs, I saw the same pattern and it was sort of like the sentence of the paragraph sort of it's a picture of what the rest of the paragraph is going to be like. Well, they teach it. Well, in law school, legal writing, they teach it. Like, start with the sentence, put to me, like, finish up. Exactly, exactly. And then if you look at litigation on, like, the timeline, I mean, depending on where you lodge your motions and if there's no removals, you have uh, the timeline, the standard sort of two-dimensional litigation timeline of, like, complaint, uh, answer, response, uh, discovery, motion for summary judgment, uh, trial, verdict. That's sort of the same pattern. And so I was thinking about that. So has anyone written about self-repeating patterns in law before? Because I wanted to find some sort of information on this. And then that's what brought me to Andrew Stump's work on uh, his modeling of the application of law as a, as a fractal. And a fractal is a infinite complex shape. And what that means is instead of just a square box with flat lines uh, around it, 
It's a shape that has really intricate boundaries, infinitely intricate boundaries. So when you zoom in on the corner of this shape, and the corner is really just a jagged edge, the jags and the zigs and the zags, they don't disappear. They don't smooth out. It's just you just you can go in forever and the complexity remains the same. And given it's infinite, and a lot of these are self-repeating. And what's important about the understanding of fractal geometry is that those infinitely complex shapes can be captured with a single formula. So with a single line of code, you can capture this infinitely complex shape and you can say whether a point on a graph is inside or outside of this infinitely complex shape. Well, that's a lot like law. Instead of a formula or a line of code, we have a policy like do not steal. And we apply that to all sorts of different factual patterns, all different cases. Every case has to have some variety in it in order to survive res judicata. So I thought that was very interesting. And even though we apply this law to an infinitely complex data set, there's these, these different cases, every case is different. You can still be able to reliably determine what counts as thievery and what doesn't because laws have to be able to be followed, you know, to some degree. And that's very similar to how fractal geometry works. Did you start thinking about this when you're still practicing? Yeah. So this is 2016 when I started writing this paper, building off of Andrew Stump's work that he was talking about it in the context of the tax code. And he says, okay, if the law is really just an application of a single policy to infinitely complex facts, then if we, like we do with the tax code, if we just try to create laws for every factual scenario, there's always going to be exceptions. We'll never cover everything because everything is potentially infinite. It's the factual variety of life. There's, there's always going to be something different. There might be patterns, but there's always going to be exceptions and loopholes that people can find. And the legal books, the tax code is going to be a mess. And it is. One page of tax code requires 50 pages of understanding from all the terms and citations. Right. And he says, if we got to rewrite this thing and an appreciation of the law similarities to fractals and that you just make a, a clear policy statement, a clear rule of law, and then you give examples. And the examples are like points on the graph where you say, here's a factual situation that is legal. Here's one that isn't given this statute. So I said, well, hold on. Like theoretically, if we can capture these infinitely complex shapes with a single line of code, then there's computer potential to capture the legal application with code as well, efficiently. And it would have to be some sort of iterative formula like a fractal. So I started writing about that and I'm, I'm getting back to why I left. We're circling. It's a little <laughs> bit a long way around the barn, but so I have this in the back of my mind and, you know, I'm interested in surfacing justice. I, I fancy myself to be someone that is doing the right thing. And I'm settling cases on behalf of my clients because the party suing them is suing them for amount that would be less than the amount my client would right. pay any law firm to prove they didn't do anything wrong. And that really frustrated me. Like it killed me to have to explain to a client. And I know the case I've studied it. You know, you take your client's side. And so I think all attorneys grapple with this because you have their back so much and you know, they didn't do anything wrong, but they still should probably just pay the people. So right. it was frustrating to not only feel like I wasn't surfacing justice because of the way that the billable hour model worked, 
but actually affect justice, like be the reason that injustice was being enacted by way of innocent parties having to finance just people that are suing them for no other reason than suing them. So that drove me crazy. And we had, I had a really rough mediation one day. I'll never forget it. We were in a breakout room. It was eight hours long. It's this teeny room. It's hot. And the opposing counsel had no case. At one point, the opposing counsel literally broke down in tears. <laughs> the counsel did. He was like, I worked so hard on this, blah, blah, blah. I, I mean, it was a lunacy. We still paid him. We still paid yeah. him because the amount that they were seeking was less than the amount it would cost my client. And after that, I said, okay, it's time to do something about this. I'm going to teach myself coding uh, in order to find ways to automate some of the road work, because if we can theoretically automate like the most complicated part of law, legal application, then there's gotta be tools existing right now that can automate the road work that ultimately swallows the majority of my client's litigation budget. So I started teaching myself uh, Python, which is a very uh, sort of entry-level code. And I have a book over here. It's called uh, how to automate the boring stuff with Python. And I read that and then I took code academy classes and then I started learning C sharp and I came across some of these new natural language processing modules in Python or libraries and natural language processing is the method by which a computer learns to understand and generate text that replicates how a human would understand and generate text or, or speech. It could be vocal as well. And. I said, well, this is interesting because I had already been playing around with some of the technology assisted review programs used for e-discovery. Right. What this is, is, is called a uh, supervised machine learning where you'll be reviewing documents. Uh, you have a thousand emails for this case coming up and the partner says, Hey, you know, we got to get these documents reviewed. So you're reviewing them all night. And with the technology assisted review program, as you identify documents as relevant, irrelevant, a, an AI, a machine learning model is looking at your decisions and then guessing based on your decisions, which documents, which emails are of all the emails in the case are going to be most relevant. And then as you say, yes, relevant, irrelevant, it keeps refining it. And then it can get to a point where it's like 95% confident that these 10 emails are the smoking gun emails. And that can save a lot of time. But I didn't think it was at a point where it was going to go far enough. So once I came across the natural language processing module, I said, well, I could combine these things that can allow computers to read and make language with some of the machine learning models that we use to train for relevancy to create a platform that takes documents and other uh, sources of legal and factual data and uses those to like rapidly construct new litigation documents. Here's what I find interesting though. <laughs> so you didn't immediately start creating BriefPoint to handle discovery requests. You created some vaporware. You were just testing out ideas to see what took. A lot of tech founders don't do that. They've come up with an idea and they, they get laser focused on that. I thought that was really interesting. You really need product market fit. So if we're talking entrepreneurship, I'll put on my entrepreneur hat. And you need to establish product market fit. And in life, you don't have a lot of at-bats for starting a company, because if you're going to start a company, you really want to do it right. 
obviously there's a culture in Silicon Valley where failure is celebrated, but it's still a lot better if you don't fail because failure, although celebrated is still failure and no. you can lose all your money. And I've personally, I've spent all my money on, on my company. I, I think there was at one point where I had $600 in my bank account and yep. that's sort of what led me to Ironclad, but we can, we can get there. We can put a pin in, in there. <laughs> And, uh, so, so I needed to find product market fit and I knew the underlying tech that I was going to use, but there was, there were so many different ideas that I had. And I said, well, I want to make sure that when I launch it's adopted by attorneys because in legal technology, attorney adoption is the biggest barrier. And there's reasons for that. It's not just the attorneys. A lot of people like to say attorneys are just archaic. They're slow to move. And to some degree they are, and to some degree that's justified. But a lot of it is just like the actual tech itself has just not been great in legal tech. Right. That's why I found it so interesting about you coming up, you know, pitching some ideas and making just basically wireframes of programs that don't exist yet. Because you have legal tech companies where people like you or practice, they were going to scratch their own itch. There's something, get the idea there. But there, then there are some programs that are trying to serve a need in the legal community that maybe doesn't need to be served. It's not that big of a problem. So what I did with these ideas, to, you know, to be clear, is I created vaporware programs. Vaporware is a term for just fake software. It's just a, right. all it is, is it's just smoke and mirrors, but it looks like a real program. And what I did is I had a very complicated PowerPoint presentation where instead of clicking next slide, I would click on what looked to be a icon on my desktop and I double click it and then uh, something would open. But really what was happening was it was transitioning from one slide to the next. So I had hundreds of slides all connected to each other through these fake buttons in this complex web. And that allowed me to iterate on the product and change it and adapt it really quickly. So the first product we had was a client management portal or a client communication portal where I said, okay, well, because we can get all this data from the case and we can, we can make a tool that extracts and uh, learns about cases all on its own. We can give a attorneys somewhere where their clients can log in. There's like a Domino's pizza tracker showing the progress of their <laughs> case. And I actually had a Domino's pizza tracker in my program. I copied their bar where it says <laughs> someone's in the kitchen. And I just replaced right. that for complaint has been served. And then it, right. the middle one is, it says like, we're boxing up your pizza. And I replaced that with motion for summary judgment has been filed. So it's just, it was kind of silly, but it got the point across. And that did not resonate because attorneys were saying, I don't need to pay for that. My client can just give me a call. And by the way, every law firm has their own client portal. Clients are sick of having to have all these different logins to all these different right. things to keep track of it. So another thing I had was a document generation. And I had demur document generation because I knew demurs could be generated. Which demur for somewhat like a motion to dismiss in other jurisdictions. It's a motion to dismiss or motion to strike. It happens in response to a complaint. Judges hate it. I love it. I demurred to everything. If I had the budget for it, I demurred to everything. Because you can cut out parts of the complaint and then you don't need to do discovery on it. So you sort of carterize a little bit of the pain of the litigation going forward. So I had a demur drafting thing and that was a little too niche. And then I had this discovery response automation module and everyone was really resonating with that. And who are you testing it on? Who are your guinea pigs? Yeah, so obviously my friends, but really I needed more than just that. And you have to get unbiased opinions. So you have to think when you're establishing product market fit without a product, okay, how do I get feedback on this product? That's going to be honest. It's not going to be, I showed it to my mom and she was like, oh, this is great. 
but that's <laughs> probably not the most unbiased. I would hope, she, I, I would hope your mom would tell you that, that it, she liked it. <laughs> Honestly, she didn't understand it. Neither, <laughs> neither of my parents understood it. I, I don't know that they, they do even now. But so California has a repository of all the attorneys and it's listed by bar number. So you can search for attorneys by bar number. And I know there's about 400,000 attorneys in California, maybe um, three, a little over 300,000 active. And I searched bar number 200,000 on the site and they have a, the attorney's name and a, his phone, his or her phone number. And I just cold called them. And I just out of curiosity, what year was, do you know what year that person started? So 200,000. And so my, I know like when you're in the five digits, you're looking at the eighties and the like seventies. Here's, here's why I ask. I'm a. 189. I'm 189,000. So that's why. Oh my it's gosh. Not that, yeah. So that's why I asked. Well, what year did you graduate? So why, I was licensed in 97. What, 97 is. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I barely missed you. I was going to give you a cold call, but I started 200,000 <laughs> yeah, instead. Right. We would have yeah. been best friends. Um, <laughs> no, 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 people did not like that. I was calling them, but uh, that's okay. So I called people one at a time from 200,000. I just go 200,000, 2001. And I would just call people and, you know, some people would be transactional attorneys. I didn't know what their practice right. was. I was just getting it out. But some people would agree to a demo. I'd say, hey, I have this product. It does X, Y, Z. And I would say one of the features you want to, when you're selling, you need to focus on one thing. Right? So uh, I said, okay, this product does this, this product does that. Uh, would you mind, uh, you know, sitting for a demo? We're going to release next month. So if they agree to that, I would show them a demo of the fake program. I'd, you know pretend that it was real, but say it's not out yet. And at the end of the demo, I'd say, okay, this is a hundred dollars a month. Will you buy this? And they say yes or no. And, you know, attorneys are pretty honest about this kind of thing. Uh, and I benefited from their candid feedback because I was able to get their feedback and then I could just change the product. Right. And I kept iterating on these fake products until I had one where every single demo I was on, people were saying, I love this. I want this. Sign me up. So it becomes brief point. So describe it. What is it? How do you sell it now? Briefpoint's MVP. So that's what's out right now. I guess MVP might be too derogatory because it, it is a really good program. Basically, what it was was you log on to briefpoint.ai, you drag and drop a discovery request, any type of discovery request. Right now, it's only California. And then Briefpoint looks at our AI, looks at the document, it pulls out stuff from the document like the party names, the requests themselves, and it constructs as much of a response template as possible. And it fills out as much of that template as it can. And then we allow our users to finalize and finish the template with just drag and dropping their objections and their responses onto it. And that's sort of in line with our overarching goal of removing typing from litigation. So that's Briefpoint's goals. We want to make litigation a practice where you don't need to spend hours refining and typing out rote things or even arguments necessarily. Instead, you tell our AI how you want to argue through one method or another, and our AI does all the, the legwork for you. And the reason we do it in that way is so that we can keep an attorney in the loop. And we want attorneys in the loop when we're doing this because AI is really good. And this, we're all talking about generative AI. I love generative AI. I can talk about it for hours. A generative AI that just does a full job for an attorney, like drafts a motion for summary judgment because of the way a generative adversarial network, which is sort of the type of AI we're looking at most frequently because of the way it works, where it doesn't give you anything unless that thing is identical to the real data in its neural network. It's always going to look good. It's always going right. to look good. And that can be a problem. 
when you have a young associate rubber stamping it, right? Where right. you just say, okay, this looks good. I think that's lost on a lot of people. I agree with you. Generative AI is going to change the way we do stuff. But that very, in these early days, that right there, the fact that it looks deceivingly good, but even so, while it might be grammatically correct, it might have legal implications that you don't want it to have. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's it's like the there was a dolly, there's some copyright controversy because this AI-generated images, they had these white streaks in the bottom right. And it was just this nonsensical white streaks. And we said, well, well, what could that be? What that implied was that there were taking pieces of art that were right. signed by artists. And so the AI says, oh, yeah, no, this generated image looks just like the rest of these images because it has this, this little markings at the bottom right. It doesn't know it's a signature. And what it told the users was that the art they were using to construct it was copyrighted. It was signed. Right. And the AI just you know, sort of pulled on itself there a little bit. In the same way, in a brief, you could have a citation. And if the AI doesn't know that what a citation is, it could just put everything in the text as it looks. So it's like right. you know, the names of the talises, you know, the, the, the court and the year and the page number, but it could all be just jumbled up. So what BriefPoint's really designed to do is we've been testing GPT for like over a year, I think. We're going to use it to help draft separate statements. And in our testing, we have different degrees of heavy handedness of use of the AI. You know, let's talk about that. How does it differ? How does the AI that BriefPoint's using differ versus other types of generative AI? Like how is it being applied? We're using GPT, but you, know, you can fine tune GPT. When I said like you have... When you have generative AI do something in whole, you're increasing the likelihood that it's going to generate bad content. It will always look good. Right. The more it does on its own, the greater the risk of inaccuracy. So BriefPoint's founded on this theory that I've developed in conjunction with Stanford's machine generated legal document research arm and Dr. Ian Schick, who sort of pioneered machine generated legal documents, who's a, who's a good friend of mine. And in machine generated legal documents, the field, you break down every law document, contract or not, into three types of content delineated by their ability to be automated. And so we have canned text, which is the document title, the page number, the line numbers, maybe party names. It's the easiest to automate. You don't even need AI to do that. You can do field variables in Word to generate sufficient canned text. And, and when you're generating this stuff, you need to do it in a manner that maximizes the document's chances of success. So that's the key, is when you automate anything in a legal document, if it's going to be automated, it needs to be done in a manner that maximizes the document's chances of achieving its objective. And can text can be done really easily because the document name can be drafted in one way and it will not have an impact on the document's chances of success. It has to be the accurate document name, but not, not much beyond that. Then we have mechanical writing content. And this is a little bit more complicated than canned text because unlike canned text, it requires some filter of legal analysis in order to be populated. For example, if you're responding to a complaint, you have a world of affirmative defenses to lodge against the complaint. But copying and pasting the world of affirmative defenses into your complaint isn't going to do you much good because 99% of those are not going to relate to your case. You have to apply a legal analysis to the pool of legal data in the form of affirmative defenses and then select which ones apply. So in a breach of contract, that might be the parole evidence rule right. or something. 
that wouldn't apply to involuntary manslaughter or whatever right. it happens to be. And that's what we call mechanical. It's like conditionalized uh, content where you say, well, if this legal theory, then this content, or if these facts and these legal theories, then this content. And that can be automated using AI as well. And before we had GPT and other more advanced large language models, we thought the last type of legal content, which we call bespoke writing content, we assumed that we could never automate that. It's now looking like we can, but how we do that is important. And so now let's talk about what BriefPoint does. What BriefPoint does is we automate the can text, we automate the mechanical writing content. And the reason we do those first is because there's certain AI procedures like NLP, object-based recognition, computer vision, that can be used to really reliably automate that in a way that doesn't have a lot of variability, the same variability you would find using a chat or a GPT. But what that does is it leaves the bespoke writing content as, as an empty space. So all an attorney needs to do if they use BriefPoint is the bespoke writing content, right. the stuff that you went to law school to do. Another interesting thing I saw too is obviously you're very technical. You taught yourself to code. You knew that you needed a, a technical co-founder. And what I thought was cool is you found him. He worked at Relativity actually here in Chicago, the electronic discovery software company. But you found him through a video game community that you'd established. How'd that come about? So we met through video gaming. My co-founder was the uh, head engineer at Relativity Discovery. And I moved to Orange County from LA, from the LA district attorneys to work in aviation and aerospace down here in Orange County. And I didn't have any friends here. So I thought maybe I'll just sort of create a social life. And I'm, you know, look at me. I'm, I'm like a nerdy guy. I have thick glasses. I'm not going to go and play kickball or basketball. Um, so I'd like to meet people. Just so everybody listed knows you, you're selling yourself short. You're, you're, you're. No, stop, <laughs> stop chat. And so I, you know, I'm not like a sports player. It's just like, I'm like, you know, you Google, how do you meet friends in your thirties? And it's just. It's basically tells you, it's like, well, buy a cat and prepare to die alone. <laughs> and so I was like, I'm going to create my own social experience. I'm not, you know, whatever. So I bought a PlayStation at like a Walmart or something. And I started recruiting for an online community of people similar to me. So young professionals that needed some sort of social outlet after work. And I recruited, I think ultimately we had about 815 wow. members at our peak. And it was just a fun thing. It felt like a job sometimes. Across the country or across the world? Across the world. Yeah. Actually, we had parties playing video games 24-7 because at midnight Western time was when uh, it was noon for our people in India. And then they'd hop on that party. And then that would go sort of to our Hawaiian team and then uh, our California team and then East Coast and then UK. We had a pretty strong... We had meetups in the UK and all these, and all these in New York and Chicago and San Francisco. It was a great experience. And I really, I had a good time. So I have this and I'm looking for a CTO because after I've established product market fit and after I conquered the tech challenge, cause I didn't know whether what, I, what my theory if it was possible or not. So I put a fake job on Upwork and pretended to hire engineers to build the product. And then I'd sort of just be sussing out whether or not it was possible by asking them <laughs> if they could do it. And none of them were going to be good for a CTO. 
all of my interviews with CTOs were going okay. I had a, a, some strong candidates. But then I said, you know, I'm just going to post on our gaming community's chat board and I'm just going to throw it out there. So I say, hey, everybody, I'm starting a company. Is anyone better at coding than me? It's a low bar. And someone named uh, with their sort of their gamer name uh, was Sacrilicious was his name. <laughs> he messaged me and I get a message from Sacrilicious and he's interested in being a CTO. And I'm thinking, Sacrilicious, oh, well, this is not going to go anywhere. <laughs> And, uh, he looked at the pitch deck that I had prepared and sort of my go-to-market strategy. And he said, like, yeah, I'm, I'm interested. And, uh, I'm actually, I have a, a designer, a front-end engineer, a back-end engineer that I had built a company for before. They're also willing to join. And by the way, I'm a lead engineer at Relativity Discovery. I've been coding for 15 years. So it was just, I said, oh, this is, this is amazing. And I had the other candidates. I said, this is just, no one can compare. And his name's Chris Maffin. His real name is Chris Maffin. You can call him sacrilegious. I would <laughs> encourage you to do so. But he came along and he's been, you know, my best partner. He brought on Bridget, our head of design, who is just incredible. And you can see, I mean, she's really the architect of BriefPoint. We, before we create a feature in BriefPoint, we ask ourselves, can this be done intuitively? And if it cannot, then we do not do it. So we prioritize usability over feature sets and we grow slowly because of that. So whenever we add a feature, we rigorously test it. We make sure it's usable and we interview our customers to ensure that it's something that they would use. And in that vein, they're only going to use things that make sense to use. And so I knew that it was really important to have a designer on sort of our founding team. So that's why Bridget came along and she's, she's been incredible. And any visit to briefpoint.ai will, will, will show you her, her it's, it's all her work really there. Well, that's cool. Was it a discord channel? Was that how you guys communicated or? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Discord. Yep. I'm, I, I have it in the background right now. That's how we do all of our company communications. Oh, so you're not a Slack shop. You're a discord shop. We have Slack as well because we have, there's more APIs with Slack. Right. So when I'm using Zapier to sort of notify me when someone signs up, that's not a member of the California bar, for example, uh, that's all on Slack. Speaking of Xavier, I think that is a wildly under the radar, underutilized app in legal. Yeah, I, I've automated probably with Zapier, I've automated probably 5,000 tasks this month. It is oh, constantly yeah. running. It's all my email organization. Yep. Whenever I create a new event in my calendar, if a prior event had the same name, it automatically copies and pastes the prior event's agenda and notes into the new event's description. So I just have a running list of all of my meeting notes. I, I don't need to do email campaigns. Uh, just, I use, I, it's incredible. I'm, a, I'm a Zapier. I love Zapier. I love it. Yeah, me too. I actually even wrote an article for him one time about the automations we do. Uh, you know, a lot of our client facing stuff, just the way, you know, they, they sign up, they fill out a form, generates a engagement agreement. It puts them in our accounting software, does all kinds yep. of stuff. Like, I encourage everyone to go out and check out yep. Zapier right now. You've already alluded to the billable hour and how there's issues with it, but I was going to ask you this question. Then I started thinking about it and I watched the demo on your website, which is it's a very cool demo. Because at first I was going to ask you, well, how do you sell to lawyers to automate discovery, which they're getting paid on, which to your point on your website, it costs an average of $23,000 a, a year. But then I thought about it and going back to the, your third level, the bespoke content. So really... It's where the meat of an attorney's time should be spent responding to an interrogatory. You know, the objections to your point are generally wrote, and they just got to match up with whatever it is. But that should be the real 
best use of attorney's time is putting that bespoke contact interrogatory response. So you really, although you're saving lawyer's time, it might be de minimis because really what the, the first part of Briefpoint's doing is making your objections consistent <laughs> across all your cases, you know, and, and making your format consistent across the cases. So the billable hour and the true billable time that's valuable to a client is not at risk if they use Briefpoint. And that is the elephant in the room with all efficiency tools in, in legal. It says, you know, people always say, oh, you'll never sell that. People, you know, they keep the lights on with their bills and like attorneys need to work slowly to right. milk their clients for money. And that is just such an unfair representation of, of my experience with litigators. And my experience is number one, your budget, whatever you bill, it's getting cut. Right. It's getting cut. If you're working for a corporate client, they have someone called a legal analysis. Whose job is it to cut your hours? Right. And so they're not getting everything they're billing for, A. B, over 60% of BriefPoint's customers are billable hour attorneys because they're overworked. You know, they don't right. want to do this work. They'd rather do a creative motion sometime that maybe they didn't have budget for before using BriefPoint. And in my experience, I found that attorneys really do care about doing the right thing for their client. And I think when clients start seeing attorneys that are using BriefPoint for discovery and for other documents as well, because we're about to release our separate statement automation here soon for motions to compel. And that will have GPT, but I'm not going to sell it here. The, so when attorneys are using BriefPoint for discovery, that discovery line item is going to be very low relative to your competitor, the other outside litigation counsels. And a legal analysis looks at all these things sort of in the same sitting, they're going to say, uh, the next time they're hiring an attorney, right. they're going to say, I don't want you to take more than this much money for discovery. And you know, you come up with agreements with your in-house counsel. You say, okay, I won't bill for this or I'll only bill this much for that. And as in-house counsel starts seeing people using these tools, they're going to say, why aren't you using these? Plus it makes outside counsel more attractive to the client when they see they're using the best tech out there to do the best job on behalf of the client. Absolutely. And how many litigation budgets have ended up under budget? Probably two. <laughs> it's not a lot. And when you can reduce your spend in one area dramatically, you can, it's not hard to fill that with another deposition of a witness or more prep for trial. The things that you might not get away with billing before you can now do because it falls within the budget parameters. You mentioned you're moving on to separate statements. What else is on the roadmap? I assume other jurisdictions, maybe other types of legal documents. What are the next priorities? Our goal is to automate the entirety of the process from demand letter to appeal. And this year we'll have yeah, separate statements and uh, that will be incorporating some more advanced neural networks. Once we have the automation of the complaint and we have access to cases facts, we'll be able to automate more documents because those facts can sort of emanate certain portions of other documents like statements of facts and other things going forward. But just going back to the roadmap, we also have uh, so separate statements, supplemental responses, client verification. Uh, we're doing forms. We're doing templatizing where you can just upload any document you like to BriefPoint and then you replace like the words that are variable. So party names, court names, uh, like insurance carriers, company names, amounts, and then you add that to BriefPoint, and then that turns into a BriefPoint template for you, and then whenever you, you can just click download at any time, 
and it'll be auto-completed with all the data we've pulled out for whatever case you're downloading it through. Then federal coverage, yeah. So federal coverage is great uh, in that it's haunting me. Um, <laughs> it's There's 98 district courts in the U.S., and every district court has potentially different drafting rules. And there's, you know, there's variation even between Northern, Southern, and Central District of California. So what we want to make sure is that we have, and what we're building and what we've been drafting is just a, a really good repository of all the local drafting rules. So the footnotes have to be 11.5 in right. this district, but only 11 in another. And we want to nail that down and we'll be keeping that up to date so that when our users download a document that's in those jurisdictions, they don't need to think about the formatting at all. And if they use our templatizing f- uh, function, then they can have like really robust master captions on our platform that don't need to be reformatted per district. Nathan, appreciate your time. People want to find out more about BriefPoint. Where do you want them to go? Yeah, uh, come find me on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn uh, all day, every day, basically. And so you can find me at Nathan Walter, I'm BriefPoint CEO and legal technologist. Okay, that's a wrap for today's episode. As always, we really appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on most major podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, etc. Also, if you like us enough, I hope you leave us a favorable review. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.